0: Right. Okay. Well, we've we've been on the the, the whole kind of man woman difference in gender roles kind of thing uh, in our thinking recently, and uh, so I thought I'd just do a you know kind of a bit of a Bible study and just kind of a uh, you know un- underline a few points that, that you know that seem to me to be the main ones and try and try and strike strike that balance, um, and I think I think really the the. The idea that I want to kind of knock on the head, because it's it's sort of the uh, it's it, it's the idea you'll normally come across in this country, okay, uh, on this issue, and it's the idea that kind of man and woman relationships were one thing when God created Adam and Eve. Um, that was one thing. Then you got the fall, and it all changed, and uh, so that was the fallen state. Then. Jesus comes along, undoes the fall, and it all changes again, if you see what I mean. And what I want to actually demonstrate is that when it comes to what we're going to see as the, the, the difference in roles between men and women, what I want to actually demonstrate, the truth of the matter is, from the moment that God created Adam and Eve, it ain't changed at all. There has been no change whatsoever. And this is basically what I want us to look at. Now, if, if you go to Genesis chapter 1, yes. Start at the very beginning, it's a very good place to start. It was Judy Andrews who said that, yeah. wasn't it? Um, right. Okay. Let's let's read verse 26 and 27, and then we'll read verse 31. So this is the culmination of God's creation. This is the sixth day. Oh, sixth day! Anyone see that film, by the way? You see? Great film. No, sixth day. Good old Arnie. What a great film. Okay. Right. Um, Male and female, he created them. Then verse 31, when God, God saw all that he had made and it was very good, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And it's interesting, in the previous five days of creation, when God was creating everything else, at the end of each point, at the end of each day, God said it was good. But once he created men and women, then he said it was very good. Because then it was complete. Men and women were what the universe was created for. But just, you know, sort of notice that here God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So the man there includes men and women. It's not purely man as opposed to woman. It's kind of mankind in that sense. And of course, what we need, immediately need to notice is that both men and women are created in the image of God. And what that means is that they have completely equal status. And of course, it's important for us all the time to make clear, a lot of people, when they think you're trying to make a distinction between the roles between men and women, particularly when you get you know, the idea of wives submitting to husbands and stuff like that, people often respond and say, oh, you know what, you're saying women are inferior to men? I mean, of course we're not, not in any way at all. And we're going to be seeing that as we proceed before the Lord Utterly equal status, men and women are both made in the image of God. And notice here that the dominion was given to men and women. Let us make man and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the livestock. Then we've seen that this man, you know, God created man includes male and female. So we can see there that men and women were created by God to rule over creation to rule over the earth. Now, let's go to Genesis 2 and look at verse 15. Now, this is after God has created Adam. And it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Now, what's interesting, at this point, Eve hasn't been created. Now, God says to Adam, Okay, begin your dominion. He says, Here's your bit. Take care of it. Be in charge of it. Rule over it. Tend the garden. So what's interesting is here, Adam is given dominion on his own. Eve at this point isn't even created. Now that raises a question. And this question is the key, really, to what we're going to be looking at tonight. The question is, so do men and women have dominion? Or does man have dominion? Can you gives you the point. When God originally creates, we have male and female, he created them, he gave them dominion. But here, he gives Adam dominion. Adam begins the task of ruling over the earth before Eve is even created, all right? So can you see, what, what's the point here? Who has dominion? Is it the man, or is it the man and the woman together? And, and the key to answering that question is down in verse 18. And it's only then, after God has put Adam to work, The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And this is the key. Adam was set to having dominion over the earth on his own. But the whole time, God intended that he would have dominion with someone else. He needed a helper. He wasn't supposed to be doing it on his own. And this word helper, and of course we're going to see that God created Eve in order to be his helper, or in you know, the oldly worldly translations it says help meet. Right. And we're going to see that this is tremendously important that Eve came along to be Adam's helper, but again, a lot of people immediately, they say, oh, right, so you're saying that Eve, Eve was just his slave or something, you know, that, that, that she was inferior to Adam because she was his helper. Now, interestingly, um, in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms, you get the phrase, God is my helper. It's the same word. This word helper has no implication whatsoever of inferiority. I mean, God is our helper. I mean, God isn't inferior to us. He's our superior. But the point is that Eve was created to be the helper for Adam. Now, look at this. Let's read now verse 19. And look, look, look how, how the Lord goes about this, okay? Because, of course, the Lord knew all the time that Adam was no good on his own, right? Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Now, this is interesting, because, of course, in Hebrew culture, throughout the Old Testament, naming something always implied having authority over that thing. And, uh, you know, you see this in the Old Testament, you know, I mean, sort of, um, you know, obviously it it was the man who named the children. And wherever you turn in Hebrew culture, if you name something, it implies you have authority over it. And it's interesting, have you ever noticed um, in Genesis chapter one, that such a big play is made by the writer on the fact that God, you know, he, he created something and he called it this. And then he called it that. He called the, you know, the darkness night. He called the light day. You know, he called the, you know, the, you know, the water on the earth, the sea. And he called the dry land, that, you know, this big emphasis on God naming things. Well, it's because obviously as the creator, he was ultimately in authority and is in authority over absolutely everything. So this idea of naming implies having authority. And of course, here we see Adam naming all the animals. Why? Well, because he is going to have authority over them. He's in dominion over nature. Now, obviously, we've already seen once he's joined by Eve, she is going to be in dominion over all these things with him. But something now is going to happen that is tremendously important. And in verse 21, so the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. The man said, now this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. In exactly the same way that the Lord brought all the animals to Adam for him to name them because he was in authority over them, in exactly the same way, having created Eve out of him, once Adam woke up and there was Eve, the Lord brought Eve to him, or or she wasn't Eve at that particular time, but Adam named her. And so can you see the point? Adam and Eve, man and woman, together, were to have dominion over nature, over the earth. But, in their relationship to each other, the woman was under the authority of the man and it's interesting as well if you go back into um uh, ah I've lost it, yeah, back into verse sixteen, and this is All what the Lord is saying to Adam before Eve was created, he says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, obviously, God knows that he's imminently going to create the woman. But this mandate, this Adam, you have absolute freedom, but you're not to do this. God didn't tell that to Adam and Eve. He told it to Adam. You see that? It was his responsibility, if you like, to police that one simple restriction that was put on his life, and obviously would apply to Eve once she came into being as well. And so can you see that all this is making very, very clear the fact that Adam came first. And when we get to the New Testament, we're going to see that that is Paul's argument in its entirety. Adam came first. And clearly, Adam came first because he was to be in authority over the woman not just authority over um, the rest of, of nature. And so, you know, sort of like here, here we've got this, this simple thing that we can see that Eve was created to be a helper to Adam, not the other way round. And therefore, she was to be under his authority in the sense that he was the one who was responsible for leadership you see the point there. It has nothing whatsoever to do with being superior to Eve. It has nothing whatsoever to do with that at all, okay? And then, of course, in verse 24, we have, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And of course, the point is that here we have marriage. Adam and Eve were to be a husband and wife. Now, what I'm going to show you is that this, all this is before sin came into the world. We have Adam, the husband, we have Eve, his wife. We see clearly that she is a helper to him, that he is the leader in, that, you know, in that, that thing. He's the one responsible, okay, before God for what the two of them do, all right? And what I'm saying is that arrangement never changes. That arrangement remains constant throughout human history. It remained the case throughout the Old Testament. It remained the case throughout the New Testament after Jesus died and rose again and it will remain the case as long as uh, mortal human history continues. It's as simple as that. And the reason it will continue unchanged is simply because it's marriage. It's marriage. Marriage was instituted before the fall, not after it, alright? It was corrupted by the fall and Jesus' death on the cross enables us to get back to marriage as it should be but fundamentally marriage was created before the fall it is mankind's normal condition and within marriage the headship of the man over the woman is the normal condition of humanity from the word go it is part and parcel of god's design for marriage so when we say god's desire for humanity was one man and one woman for life Well, no one's going to argue with that. No Bible-believing Christian's going to argue with that. And if you say that was instituted before the fall, they'll say, yes, of course it was. It was fundamentally good. Now, in exactly the same way, God's rules for marriage, that the man was the head of the woman, in exactly the same way, that was set before the fall. The strange thing is that there are Bible-believing Christians who want to say, oh, no, it wasn't that that only came in as a re- after the fall, which it certainly didn't. We're seeing here at every point that Adam's headship over Eve. So what we're seeing is that, yes, when it comes to dominion, it's not that man has dominion on his own. It's ridiculous. It's men and women together have dominion. But the dominion of the woman is that she has that dominion as she helps her husband have dominion. Can you see the point? The wife's role is as the helper to the husband. She has dominion, but she takes her dominion by helping her husband and aiding him in whatever God requires of him. So basically what we've got is is this. If, If a wife is her husband's helper, then basically what we've got is this. The man is directly doing the Lord's work okay, the woman does the Lord's work but indirectly because her work is enabling her husband to do the work he has been called to because he can't do it properly without her help. So can you see the point here? It's not that the husband does his work for the Lord and then over here the wife does her work for the Lord. That's not it. What it is, is the man is incomplete without the woman. The woman is incomplete without the Lord. They can only do the Lord's work together. And this is done by the woman being the helpmate to the husband, being everything to him that's missing if she wasn't there, so that he can be doing what God has called him to do properly. And he can't do it properly without the help of his wife. It's as simple as that. And so if we go now into 1 Corinthians... Eleven, and remember, I'm simply saying we've everything we've seen in Scripture thus far has been before sin came into the world. Okay, now when we go to one Corinthians eleven, because remember, some people say, well, uh, yeah, this kind of you know order between men and women it only came in as a result of the fall. We've seen that isn't the case at all. What came in as a result of the fall was that, <clears throat> well, what you would call the battle of the sexes. What came in as a result of the fall was women trying to dominate men and men exploiting women. What came in as a result of the fall was chauvinism and feminism. The idea of the husband being the head of the wife, that didn't come in after the fall. We've seen that was in place before the fall. Now when we go to 1 Corinthians 11, now we're in the new covenant. So people who argue, they say, well, no, the man being the head of the woman only came in after the fall. That was a result of sin. Jesus died on the cross to undo all that. So once we get into the new covenant, all that is undone. Well, when we turn to 1 Corinthians 11, we're turning to the writings of probably outside of Jesus himself, the one man who understood the new covenant better than anybody else did. We're actually looking at the writing of Paul the Apostle. And when we look at 1 Corinthians 11, chapter, uh, verse 3, we read this. Now, I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now here we have a purely hierarchical statement here. This is authority, headship. There have been no instances yet found of New Testament Greek using the word head in any other sense as either literally a physical head or metaphorically to represent authority. It's as simple as that. No usage of this word has been fa- Some people try and argue, no, this isn't authority. This is referring to the source, just saying that the man is the source of the woman because Eve was created out of Adam. Now, if that's the case, and that concept is unknown in the Greek of the New Testament, I mean, it's just, you know, it's just plucking it out of the air. No, no examples have ever been found of that. But if that was the argument, what have we got? Now, we want you to realise that the source of every man is Christ. Okay, yeah, that could work. And the source of the woman is man. Okay, yeah, that could work. And the head and the source of Christ is God. No, that's heresy. Of course it is. Jesus is uncreated. Jesus is himself God. Can you see? If the idea of source is where something begins, Jesus had no beginning. So clearly what we've got here, in the same way that Jesus submitted to the Father... And is Jesus inferior to the Father? Of course he's not. He's the second person of the Trinity. They're absolutely equal. This has nothing to do with superior, superiority or inferiority. It's got to do with function. For the purposes of redemption, Jesus submits to the authority of the Father. Because he's inferior? No, of course not. But simply because that's the why it had to be in order for him to redeem us. And so he's simply saying here, look, Father, the Father is in charge of Christ. Christ is in charge of the man and the man is in charge of the woman. It's as simple as that. Okay. So what we're seeing here in the writing of Paul is exactly what we saw in Genesis chapter two before sin came into the world. Okay. And of course, a head covering, and I think you know Robert's going to take us back to some further thoughts on the head covering, you know, next week. But the head covering, and at this point let's put in whatever that is be it literally a head covering or long hair. The point is, that head covering, whatever it is, signifies this very fact that a wife is under the authority of her husband. Okay. Now, and if we read verses 7 to 9, okay, I just want you to, to, to try and get hold of, of, of these kind of verses. And I'm not interested in the head covering aspects here. I'm just looking at Paul's arguments that lay behind it. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So the point is, he's saying the woman came from man, not the other way around. The push behind it, Adam came first. And the other thing he says is that Adam wasn't created for Eve. It was the other way round. Eve was created for Adam. This is the whole point. Adam came first and Eve was his helper. All right. Okay. Um, so so here, these are the reasons that Paul gives whereby we see that the man is the head of the woman. It's because Adam came first. But when, when you see here, we, we see the man is the image and glory of God. Now, that, that kind of makes he's in the image of God, all right. But the woman is the glory of man. Now, when Paul leaves out, he doesn't say, man is the image and glory of God, woman is the image and glory of man. But the reason he leaves image out isn't because woman isn't in the image of God. That's a foregone conclusion. Of course she is. God created them in his image, male and female. The point he's making is, of course, the woman is in the image of God, the same as the man is. The contrast that Paul's drawing here is this. The man is the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Now, you can see the point here. Now, when you get glory in the New Testament, I mean, part of the idea it's a reflecting thing. You know, it's light, it's reflection. And the point that we've actually got here, okay, is that the woman stands in relationship to her man in the same way that her man stands in relationship to God. Remember, what we've seen is... The main calling is the man's. The direct calling of service to God is the man's. But the woman's calling is to enable the man to fulfill his calling. You see, because the man is incomplete without his wife. He cannot fully be who he should be. He cannot fully do what he should do unless his wife is helping him. So we're seeing, we saw earlier, that Adam was created to directly have dominion. Eve had dominion as well, but by helping Adam have his dominion. And that together equals that they were both having dominion over their situation. But can you see the point here? Adam stands, the man stands in a direct service to God himself, whereas the woman stands more in a direct service to helping her husband do what he's got to do. So therefore what we're saying is that the woman, the wife, stands in relationship to her husband in much the same way the husband stands in his relationship to God himself. Now obviously we've got to make a a, a totally clear qualification here. We're not talking about salvation. Obviously a wife has her personal relationship with Jesus just the same as the man does. We're talking about service. Can you see? So we're not saying that the man knows the law personally, but the wife only knows the law through the husband. We're not saying that, of course not. You know, men and women, if they're believers, I mean, you know, the wife is is 100% personal with Jesus, just like her husband is, and indeed actually has a relationship personally with Jesus, which is separate from her husband. In the same way, the husband's personal relationship with Jesus is separate from his wife's. So we're not here talking about salvation. We're not here talking about personal relationship with Jesus. We're talking about function we're talking about serving God and playing out the roles that he's given us um, in this life on this earth. And so basically what we're simply saying here is that uh, the man is the glory of God and the wife is the glory of her husband because the man is the one who directly stands before God when it comes to service, whereas the wife stands before her husband and she serves God by being everything that he needs in order to do what God has called him to do. I mean when uh, in Corinthians 15 when Paul talks about glory um, you know he brings in the idea he says even different planetary bodies like sun, moon and stars they have all differing types of glory okay so don't, don't don't just be mega super spiritual with the word glory I mean it is a super spiritual word but Paul talks about the glory of the sun and the glory of the moon and the glory of the stars and the glory of a reptile's body and you know all that sort of thing now if we, if we take that the very best picture that that, that I've ever kind of, you know, sort of thought is there that really explains this is actually, if you take the picture of the Sun and the Moon um, and the Earth, okay? Now obviously the Earth is orbiting the Sun. Now for our purposes, the Sun here is God himself, alright? So the Earth revolves around the Sun. And the Earth's orbit is directly around the Sun. Can you see that? The Earth revolves around the Sun. The earth is the husband, directly orbiting the sun, revolving around the sun, God Himself. The moon is the wife. But is the moon orbiting the sun as well? Does the wife revolve around serving the Lord? Of course she does. But she does it indirectly, because whereas the earth revolves around the sun directly, the moon revolves around the sun as well, but indirectly by revolving around the earth as it revolves around the sun. Can you get the picture there? Now that's the relationship when it comes to wife, husband and the Lord. The man directly revolves around the sun. Remember we're talking service. We're not talking about personal relationship. In regards to personal relationship, both the wife and the husband revolve directly around Jesus personally. Of course they do. We're talking about function. We're talking about service. I mean, Jesus is, is, is everything that the Father is. He's everything the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is everything Jesus is. He's everything the Father is. In their natural Well, when it comes to service, redemption, we see that Jesus submits to the Father. Can you see? And this is what we're talking about. Husbands and wives, Marriage was created so that human beings could serve God properly and that service to him began before the fall. So what we're seeing here, quite simply, is when it comes to function, when it comes to serving the Lord, the man directly revolves around the Son, therefore he's the glory of the Son, he revolves around God, he's the glory of God, but the wife revolves around the Son, around the Lord, by revolving around her husband hence she is the glory of her husband. You See the difference? So both both husband and wife are revolving around the Lord, but they're doing it in slightly different ways. The man revolves around the Lord directly when it comes to service, but the wife revolves around her husband because she is directly his helper to enable him to revolve around the Lord in the way that he should, okay? So basically what we're seeing is that the wife was created to be the helper of her husband. And her husband has authority over her. But of course, now we've got to answer another question that is really important. And it's basically this. If we're seeing in scripture that the woman revolves around the man, and obviously I'm talking about husbands and wives here, we're not saying that single women are under the authority of men. We're not saying that women are under the authority of men we're saying married women are under the authority of their husbands. You know, I mean, that, that's important. Uh, this, is, this is the marriage contract, uh, okay. But if it's the case that the wife revolves around her husband, helps him and is under his authority, it's a question, so why isn't this chauvinism? I mean, sh- you know, wouldn't this just lead to a wife being her husband's servant? Can you see the problem? Indeed, I'd go even further. What sin did to the relationship between men and women? Sin didn't... This notion of, of, of a husband being in authority over his wife was not brought in because of sin. That was there before sin. What came in as a result of sin is that everything was corrupted and perverted. So it brought in a feminism. Eve wanted to manipulate and dominate her husband. But what it also brought in from the man's point of view was he wanted to dominate and exploit his wife. So so basically, chauvinism, the idea that women are just there to serve men, chauvinism is directly a result of the fall. And that's really what the battle of the sexes is. It's men trying to dominate women and it's women trying to dominate men. That is what the battle of the sexes is all about. That is the result of sin. So we've got to ask is, so how come this isn't chauvinism? And sadly, traditionally, men, religious men at that, genuinely Christian men at that, have used this... The stuff we've covered so far, they've used it, they've drawn a line under it, they've said that's all there is to it, and they've dominated women. They've, they've used the Bible to justify a chauvinism that sees women as, like, chained to the kitchen sink almost, and just, just just there to do whatever they tell them to do. So what I'm going to show you now is that that isn't... What this means, according to the Bible, and we can see that very clearly in the Bible. Now, you should still be in one Corinthians chapter eleven. Let's now read verse eleven. Paul's argument has simply been the fact that Adam came first. Says it all. Says it all. Because Adam came first, and named Eve, and Eve was created as his helper. We know that Adam was her head. I mean, that 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 is the argument. Okay, <clears throat> but in verse eleven, he says. In the Lord, however, and and we've got a, you know, a kind of a however here. And what Paul's doing, he's qualifying something now. He says, in the light of what I've just said, you might conclude this, but I don't want you to, because this is the reality, right? What he's saying, in the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man. Well, we've seen that. She's under his authority. But look at this. Nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, that's the bit we've already seen, so also man is born of woman. Now can you see what Paul does here? He kind of almost reverses his argument to prove a point. Because he says, look, I've already established with you that the fact that Adam came first clinches it that the man is the head of his wife. It's as simple as that. And the fact that the woman came from Adam All this is showing us that God's order in marriage is that the man is the head of the household, all right, and that the wife is under his authority. But what Paul then goes on to say, well, I want you to realise as well that you men, you're not independent of woman. And he says, it may be the case that Eve originally came from Adam. And he says, but where has every man in history come from since? From a woman. Every man is born of a woman. Adam was the only exception to that. And so Paul here is redressing a balance. And the reason that he's redressing this balance is because although he's established the man's headship over the woman, that's not necessarily as simplistic and quite what most men would want to think it actually is. Because we're now answering the question, well, how come women aren't just their husbands' servants then? And we're going to see that they jolly well aren't. Now, if you go back into 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and see something that Paul has already covered with them. All right. I'm going to read from verse 1 to 5. Okay. Now, there's something here that is astounding. Now, he says, "'Now, for the matters you wrote about, "'it is good for a man not to marry. "'But since there is so much immorality, "'each man should have his own wife, "'and each woman her own husband.' is that when Paul deals with this, you know, and saying, look, you know, you need to make sure a man and a wife, you know, they, they both have needs, you must meet each other's needs, alright? And what's incredible, in verse 3, he says "The husband shall fulfil his marital duty to his wife. And only then does he say wives should do likewise with their husbands. Now think about it. If the equation was, the man is the head of the woman, the woman submits to the man, therefore that makes woman his servant. You wouldn't have this first bit. The only thing that would matter would be the needs of the husband. The only thing we see Paul writing was telling the wives to make sure they're meeting their husband's needs. He doesn't do that. He firstly says, you husbands, make sure you're meeting your wife's needs. Can you see? And then he says, you wives, make sure you're meeting your husband's needs. That is totally mutual. And he then goes on to say, now then, you wives, your bodies don't belong to you, they belong to your husband. And all the chauvinists saying, yes, that's right, that's what we've been saying all along, isn't it? And then Paul says, but you husbands, your wife doesn't belong, your body doesn't belong to you, it belongs to your wife. Now that's what's astounding. When Paul says husbands have authority over their wives' bodies, that's not the end of the story. Because he says, and the wife has authority over her husband's body. How can a wife have authority over a husband in some way, if he's her authority? Can you see the point there? And it's simply because Paul is making it quite clear that the headship of the man is not as simple as merely that the woman is his servant. A man's wife is his helper. She is not his servant. Can you see the big difference between that? And when we look here at the physical side of marriage, we see the Bible teaching complete mutuality. Can you see? It's not a question that the husband is on some higher plane than the wife. Here we have complete equality. Their duties to each other are exactly the same. And then if if you go on um, down to verse 32, when Paul does this bit about explaining why it's good to be unmarried, if you can handle it, he says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affair. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. Now, if the man's headship equated to his wife merely being a servant, the only concern here in the New Testament would be the wife pleasing her husband. But what does Paul address first? The fact that an unmarried man doesn't have a wife to please. A married man, what's his primary concern? Is it actually serving the Lord? No, it's pleasing his wife. Because when you're married, that's how you serve the Lord. Do you see the point? So when Paul says, look, a married man his prime duty, he can't be as available in the Lord's service as someone who's not married for the simple reason he's got a wife to please. Now, why would the word of God be telling husbands that their greatest, you know, that part of their greater calling in life is to please their wives to do what their wives want? You see, isn't that incredible? This, this isn't chauvinism. Now, wives should please their husbands, but husbands should please their wives as well. So if we ask a question, from a man's point of view, what is one of the biggest parts of his responsibility as a husband? Well, to please his wife, which is another wife saying to do what she wants. That doesn't mean to do everything she wants. But can you see, a married man's concern is to please his wife. This isn't the wife chained to the kitchen sink and <laughs> you know, just merely be there to be his servant. She is his helper in a way that he isn't her helper. She's there to enable him to be everything he should be and to enable him to serve the Lord as God has called him to. But when it comes to their relationship together, the husband is to be as, as concerned about whether or not he's bringing his wife pleasure as the wife ought to be concerned about whether or not she is bringing him pleasure. And so what, what we're seeing here, is that the woman being his helper doesn't mean that she's just there to meet his needs in some way that he isn't there to meet her needs. Because primarily, the husband is to meet his wife's needs equally as much as she's there to meet his needs. So what we're seeing is that any question of chauvinism is out when it comes to what the Bible says. The headship of a man over his wife is not the same as saying that she is somehow his servant. She's to be his helper. Yeah, she's to submit to him. But that's a very, very different thing than the, you know, than the man thinking, you know, here I've got a ready built-in servant who's got to do whatever I say. That is not the relationship in any way at all. And so what we're basically seeing is that whereas the husband does indeed have authority over his wife, in a way that the wife does not have authority over the husband, we've got to understand that the nature of this authority is somewhat different from the type of authority that the world understands. And in its rightful place, that's okay. I mean, your boss at work can say, Oh, you do this now, and you do it. I mean, you know, so that's, that's right and proper. He has authority over you. Now, a man has authority over his wife. But if a man ever said to his wife, "Are you right? I want you to do this now," he's actually going against the authority he's got. Now, if you go to um, <coughs> go to Colossians, Colossians, and find uh, chapter three <coughs> and verse eighteen. Now we simply read this. "'Wives, submit to your husbands as, in, as is fitting in the Lord. "'Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them.'" Now, if that was all we had in the New Testament, the chauvinist might well jump back and say, all right, okay, that's a point in our favour. Look, all it says, wives, submit to your husbands. And yeah, husbands have got to love their wives and that they mustn't be harsh with them. But, but, but you could still argue from this, but it's the sort of, I have authority over my wife and she must do what I say, as it were. Well now, to get a bit of a fuller picture, let's go to Ephesians. There are times when Paul will write something to one church and fill it out and expand it, in a way that when he writes to another church, he doesn't fill it out and expand it, but he assumes they already know. So of course, when we come to Ephesians, and uh, chapter five, verse 22, and he says, Wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, basically the same as Colossians. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit to their husbands in everything. Thus far, the chauvinist could be saying, Yeah, look, the husband clicks his finger and the wife jumps. That's, you know, right? But look what he now says Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Now, all any man has to do is to address how much he loves his body. (laughs) Alright? And how caring and protective he is of his body. That's how we ought to love our wives. He who loves his wife loves himself. And there's no one alive who's not expert at loving themselves. I mean, the reason that the law is summed up in one thing, love your neighbour as yourself, is because if we all loved our neighbours as much as we love ourselves, we would all be living in a sinless world. I love myself incredibly. I mean, you know, we are all experts at loving ourselves. You see, that's the foregone conclusion, you see. So, he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body. So what Paul's saying, look, if you want a standard, the way in which you should love your wife is like this. Love your wife just like you do your own body, and you won't go far wrong. And then he goes on to say, um, just as Christ does the church. And so then he goes on, he says even more, love your wife in the same way that Jesus loves the church. Of course, the point is that Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for it. He laid his life down for it. And so basically what we've got here is, I mean, Jesus said the Son of Man came not to be served, (coughs) but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what we've seen is the fact that the wife is the helper of the husband does not make her his servant. But if we want to ask about servanthood, then what we see is the husband is the servant of his wife. I don't mean in the sense of her bossing him around, that's not what I'm talking about. A servant is more concerned about pleasing the one he serves than he is himself. And that's how a husband ought to be with his wife. And so basically, when we're, we're seeing all, all this, we're simply seeing that what it boils down to is that there's this, um, you know, whereas it's it's the case that the woman is the man's helper, and the wife comes into the husband's life. See, it's, it's not the other way round. You know, the wife orbits her husband. You know, sort of, she goes to join him where he is. It's not the other way round. She is there to help him in his calling. But, of course, that doesn't in any way mean she's merely his servant, and his duty is to be loving her as he does his own self. And so this is what gives us the, you know, the, the balance, the, the big picture of this. And functionally, what God says is that wives submit to your husbands. At the end of the day, if you fight against him, what can he do? I mean, nothing, all right. And, uh, you know, but husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. So a man's headship is not to get his own way. It's not to make his life easier in any way at all. His headship relates to his calling to serve God. But in his relationship with his wife, it is one of love and nurturing and self-giving. With one of the biggest things ever on his mind, as a married man before the Lord, isn't, Lord, how can I please you? We have the answer to that question. If I say, Jesus, how can I please you? He says, please Belinda. That's how you please me. Love your wife as I love you. And of course, when husbands and wives observe this balance, well, then that's the closest you're going to get to that paradise that Adam and Eve had before sin came into the world and wrecked it all. And of course, the point is as well that when it comes to (coughs) church life, and given that church is simply an extended family, then we would expect to see exactly the same thing extended into the church. That if... I mean, a church is made up of individual families. Now, if each individual family, if the husband is the head of each individual family, <clears throat> then when we bring those families together collectively as the extended family as a church, what ought we to see? That leadership is for the men. Also, we see that that leadership isn't a big, any. I'm in charge, And, of course, the point is that leadership is not executive in any way at all. It simply means that anything that is leadership needs to be done by one of the brothers rather than one of the sisters. To that extent, the church doesn't have anyone in charge. Uh, I mean, Jesus is in charge, but that's it. And so, therefore, we would expect that when it comes to leadership in the church, that that responsibility would fall to the men. And, of course, this is exactly what we see in Scripture. You know, I mean, sort of, you know, like, um, you know, for those who who try to argue, you know, that sort of like it's okay for women to be in leadership, irrespective of what the Bible says, one of the things that they do miss, and I've never known anyone even try and get around this, is quite simply that God became a man. He didn't become a woman. God is himself male. And there's no getting around that. God is male. He called, Jesus called 12 men to be his apostles. And when one of them backed out and betrayed him, he was replaced by another man, Paul. And we see in Scripture that universally elders are always men. And so we'd expect to see exactly the same thing in the church. And, of course, if we just go to that Timothy passage... Um, to Timothy we were looking at it last week uh, no I think 1 Timothy wasn't it and we saw in 1 Corinthians 11 when Paul was dealing with that the reason that this head covering whatever it is needs to be there is a sign to the angels that the wives are in submission to their husbands and of course what was his argument what is the reason for that it's because Adam came first it's because Eve came from Adam the man was created first and that she was created for Adam it wasn't the other way around and then when we come to this Timothy passage, um, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and in verse 11, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, she must be silent. I mean, the point is basically saying that teaching in the church is for the men folk. I mean, you know, it's, it's a leadership thing, okay? Uh, it's quite separate on the Sundays when, when you come together, each one has, obviously, the women are free, of course they are, but this is talking about when a church comes together for, for, for Bible teaching, then that should be one of the brothers doing it, and Paul makes that very, very clear. And what's his reason? Now, in passages like this, people try and say, uh, you know, they try arguments like, oh, it was just the culture of the day, it doesn't apply to us, or they try and argue, it was something going on in that church, It's some situation there. We don't know what it is, but it only applied to that, okay? Now, this is interesting, all right. What is Paul's reason for this? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. End of argument. Nothing more needs to be said. The issue here is God's design in nature, which has never changed. And what's ironic is that passages like this, where people most desperately want to to, to play the cultural card and try and get out of it. Places like this are precisely the places the Bible writers go back to creation, the natural order of things. Nothing to do with the culture of the day, nothing to do with limited circumstances in one situation, but of course it doesn't apply anywhere else. It's always a question of going back to What happened, you know, back to the nature of God's creation in the Garden of Eden, that Adam was created first, and that Eve was created to be Adam's helper and not the other way around. And so, basically, what we're seeing is, until such time as we're glorified, when there is no marriage, from the very beginning of human history, when God created Adam and then Eve in the Garden of Eden, right up to the end of human redemptive history, God's order is quite simply this that there should be one man and one woman in a marriage relationship in which the man is the head, the woman is the helper of the man, the man revolves directly around the Lord when it comes to service, the wife uh, kind of orbits around her husband as he orbits around the Lord, because she is his helper. And so that has never changed. It was true before sin came into the world, it was true after sin came into the world, it was true once the law of Moses came, and we had the old covenant, and it's true now in the new covenant. Now that Jesus has died, paid the price for sin, and been raised again from the dead, it's God's eternal order. It has never changed. So I'll leave it there, and if anyone wants to bounce back on it, do. That's why it's important to because the people like,
1: looking. Uh, like Not the beginning, they the but uh, the they're there.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I'm sure that some of the colleagues on the head was to show was to change the order of what the label saw or what it Yeah. And it also mentions
1: that it name his name, as well, he had his own to the board. He talked about the, the order being... Uh, this order being sort of applicable to to the marriage state. Mm. Obviously, the one Timothy two passage, you, you know, this is going to include single women in the church. But nevertheless, mm. Paul says that when you take the fam when when families come together, the the family order kind of dictates in that Oh, sure, that, yeah, that, yeah. What would you? I mean, presumably, some people try and do away with one Timothy two on that basis, don't they? So oh, well, it's only five to married women. Yes, et
0: yeah, that's right. You'll never find anyone being consistent who tries to use that argument because if a woman feels that she ought to teach the church when she's a single woman, she's going to feel she can teach the church when she's a married woman as well. So the point is, until you've got people who are saying, um, it's okay for unmarried women but not married women, I've never heard that argument. Um, But again, it still wouldn't apply. Because when you get the extended family of the church, obviously, where you get single people, the rules of family still apply. So if you've got women who are single, it's not that, uh, you know, that a single woman has to submit to the men in the church. Because what happens if two men tell her two different things? I mean, it's silly, isn't it? But the point is, leadership is still male. So even, even though each married woman is obviously going to submit to her husband, it doesn't mean that any single women are free to do exactly what they like, because anything that's leadership is for the men. So even if a single woman was trying to do something that was leadership, that still wouldn't be appropriate. So to that extent, whether it's single, um, you know, sort of like, or married. But the point is you do try, uh, you know, you do get some people who say women should be under the authority of men, and it's a blanket statement. Now firstly, I don't see how on earth that could happen anyway, because which men are they supposed to be under the authority of, for a start? The point is, it's wives are under the authority of their husbands. It's someone they know, love and trust, or should be someone that they can trust. And, uh, you know, but I mean, it's not just a question that, you know, if you've got a single woman in the church, then any man who tells her to do something, and I'd want to know why is a man feeling he can tell a single woman to do something anyway? it's, It's nuts, isn't it? But single women mustn't feel that they're under the authority of men in general, in the same way that a wife is under the authority of a husband. That, that would be silly. But nevertheless, leadership is male. So, so that doesn't mean that single women can lead in the church just by virtue of them being single. And, uh, you know, but when, when people use that, as, you know, as I say, they're not usually using it with integrity because are they then saying and then the moment you get married it's wrong for a married woman to teach. Whenever you get someone arguing that, they always believe it's okay for married women to teach as well. Indeed, their brief is at any cost to say it's okay for women to lead. Which the Bible says it jolly well isn't. I mean, both doesn't make the point about authority
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. So, um, is that a difference between men and women? Do more easily deceived than men? Right, I don't actually buy into the idea that what Paul is saying there is that women are intrinsically more likely to get deceived than men. Um, and, and, and I think there's evidence for that. Traditionally, if you look back over the 2,000 years of church history... I mean, the idea of women leadership is only a blip anyway, and it's fairly modern, all right? Leadership has pretty much 99% been male throughout church history. Look at the deception that these men (laughs) have managed to to fall into. So, So I think the point is, I don't think Paul's argument there is so much to say the reason that women shouldn't be leaders is because they're more likely to get deceived. Because I think men do such a good job at that, I don't see how the women could beat us when it comes to getting deceived, I really don't. I think Paul's point is quite simply, it's not that women by nature are more likely to get deceived, but when Eve moved independently from a husband by definition if a man moves out of God's calling for him, he's going to get deceived. All of us, we're only safe where God has put us. You know, I mean, if I had suddenly decided, Lord, I'm going to go and do this ministry for you now let's say God hasn't called me to it. And I end up doing something for the Lord that he hasn't called me to. Well, I mean, it's it's open season on me from the devil's point of view, isn't it? So I'm more likely to get deceived moving out of God's will for me than I am if I remain in God's will. And I think that the point is, again, there. Paul is not saying that women are intrinsically more open to deception than men. But by definition, if a woman tries to move in leadership, by definition, I mean, over men, she's by definition moving out of God's will. Now, Eve moved independently from Adam. She, she should have known better. And because she moved independently from Adam, that's why she got deceived. You know, if you see what I mean. So I don't buy it that there's something about women that they're more likely to be deceived because I say us men get deceived so easily anyway. That's why we got the Bible. We all get deceived so easily. But I think it's just Paul making the point. Look what happened when Eve tried to be independent from her husband. You know, this is... Oh, thanks. This is what happened when Eve you know, didn't take notice of what God has said. So if you start having women teaching in the church, you're going to get all kinds of trouble. But it's not because they're more open to deception, but by definition because they're moving out of God's will And any of us who move out of God's will. I get deceived enough in God's will. Let <laughs> alone moving out of it. And I think, I think that's the point. And of course, again, the thing about teaching, it's got nothing whatsoever to do with mental capability. It's not the question that women shouldn't teach because they're not clever enough. Women could be superb teachers. That's not the point. It really isn't the point. It's simply God's role. I mean, arguably, uh, I mean, in, 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 in any given situation, you might have a man who's a much better housewife than his wife. Well, so what? You know, the Bible says the wife is to manage the home. And, you know, to, you know, to be busy at home and, you know, as it were, building the nest. So the issue here isn't capability. The issue is simply God's order. I don't know if anyone's got anything else they want to. <clears throat> I was
1: just wonder if sort of God has made
0: us different roles for men and not have babies, well, I mean, <clears throat> but women can't have To narrow the hip stop. To, um, to, to walk. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Different <laughs> brains. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, completely. The same <laughs> <are> different. <clears throat> yeah. Whether that's
1: an element,
0: I don't know. Yeah, I think it is. The whole point is complementary. Adam, now obviously anyone, anyone who is called to singleness can find a completeness with Jesus that they wouldn't find otherwise. But those who aren't called, so called, the whole point is Adam was not complete without Eve. And Eve certainly wasn't complete without him. So it's a complementary thing. That's the whole point. And, you know, sort of like, you know, people make a big play, and indeed it's true, that generally, I mean, it's a blanket statement, you always get exceptions to it, but men tend to be more logical and rational, and women tend to be more emotional. Now, often that gets said as a put-down. It's not a put-down, because emotions come from the Lord. God has emotions, quite equally as he has rationality and logic and intellect. I mean, all logic. This universe is logical for the simple reason that God is logical, he's rational. Otherwise, you couldn't, um, you know, kind of understand anything at all. But the point is both are needed. Now, obviously, in any given marriage, you can always have a woman here who's more logical and a man who's more emotional, of course. And you can get men and women who are logical and emotional at the same time. But by and large, yeah, there's, um, you know, women tend to have a sensitivity, um, a kind of, um, a love that men naturally don't have. It's probably something to do with the maternal instincts. Although, having said that, I mean, I'm so paternal about Bethany, I'm, what's all this about mother love? I mean, I've got father love, how do you beat that? I mean, you know, neither Belinda and I would say we love her more. We, you know, but, 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 but these differences, we're meant to come together. And, uh, you know, sort of like, um, I mean, without, without Belinda's input, I can't see things properly. Without my input, Belinda can't see things properly. That doesn't mean that what I advise her is always right any more than saying that what she advises me is always right. But the point is I'd be a fool if I didn't see things from her point of view. Because there is a female point of view in the same way that there's a male point of view. And we need both. That, that's the important thing. And sometimes one of the things that, are, you know, that people say, well, if you're going to say that leadership is male, then they say, well, so where, where, where is the female input into leadership? And, and, and I'd be the first to say I wouldn't want to be part of a church where it was all male. You know, can you see what I mean? Where the prevailing consensus and everything was purely male. That that, that would be horrible to me and, and unbalanced. Now obviously most people, they raise that from being in unbiblical churches anyway, where there's a hierarchical authority. Because in a biblical church, I mean firstly, e- even if you've got elders, the Bible assumes that elders are married. Well so therefore all the time they're getting their wives' input, aren't they? I mean, their wives aren't elders, they are, but my goodness, I mean, aren't they taking their wives' advice in regards to everything that they... And in general, I mean, sort of like with everyone being free to share together, in a biblical church, with everyone taking part, you've actually got that perfect mix and blend of male and female. And, uh, you know, so but the point is, even with biblical leadership, Assume, you know, I mean, obviously there are lots of leaders who are single. That's fair enough. A lot of apostolic types are single. Paul was, Timothy was, Titus was. But the point is that, that, that you know, with elders, it's presumed in Scripture that at least most of them I would say are going to be married. So that female is always there through the influence of their wives. You,
1: you talked um, about um, the headship. Yeah. The sort of hierarchy, the headship Christ, Father, uh, God being the head of Christ, Christ the head of man, man head of woman. Yeah. And saying that that's in, in the area of service. And yes. And then he talks about the difference between that and our personal relationships. Yeah. I, a woman's personal relationship with the Lord. What what might be examples of areas of service whereby the man takes the lead or it acts as that spiritual head? What What's the difference between those times where, where it qualifies as service and right, or right, man yeah. takes his headship yeah. and and uh, just any other sort of decisions or things that, that happen in life? Uh, as a married couple?
0: Well, at the most basic level, it will be the fact that the husband is responsible for his family growing in the Lord. So he's the leader, he's the elder of his family, if you like. And, you know, sort of Paul, Paul talks about the husband sanctifying his wife in the same way that Christ sanctifies the church. So the point is whether, whether it's just a man and a woman without children or whether it's a husband and wife with children, the husband is the one who's responsible to, to teach them, example them, to disciple his wife and his children so that his wife is growing in the Lord and so that his children grow up to be godly children. Now, obviously, in regards to the children, his wife is helping him at every point. Of course he, you know, of course she is. You know, but it's most basic though What I mean by function isn't getting saved and personal relationship with Jesus, it's growing in the Lord and anything that the Lord wants to do through us to reach other people. You know, so I mean, uh, you know, obviously if, if people, you know, sort of come in, you know, if, if, you're, if you've if got a chance for family to evangelise or, or, or whatever ministry... So it's your
1: service as a couple, really, to the Lord, isn't it? It's, just, it's where God is directing your, you as a married couple or a family. thats that, They're the points at which the male sort of headship...
0: Yeah, counts, yeah. ...counts, as it were. Yeah, so and and of course... Right the way
1: you... Belong, which felt where you belong as a ch- you know, in the church, or, or you know, a husband's conviction would override there, yeah. Um, but then, I mean, I'm just trying to think, if maybe other people can give examples of, of areas whereby you just let it go. I mean, uh, you know, that, that aren't so important, but yes. This growing I mean that, the Lord and the family thing is obviously pretty much um, covers quite a lot of ground, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, 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 that's right. And you know, and also from the point of view of the wife being the husband's helper, I mean, whatever the husband's calling is, I mean, even even if it's you know, and I mean, we tend to think in terms of calling, in terms of ministry, which, I mean, very, very few believers are called to a full-time ministry, arguably those who are we're the odd ones. We ain't normal. And, and, and you know, a ministry is going to work. Ministry is, you know, and, and, and unless the wife is helping her husband be everything he should be in the Lord, he's not going to be effective in his witness wherever he is. And also, given that every husband is meant to be taking leadership in the church, a husband needs his wife's backing and help to be able to do that, you know, because, I mean, you know, you come along to church when you come together, each one has. All the men should be coming forward and leading and encouraging and exhorting and teaching. And We need our wives, and I'm not just talking about, you know, sort of, when I, you know, talk about completing us, I mean in every way, you know, sort of like emotionally, you know, I mean, you know, without our wives, we should be lost, if you see what I mean. That's the, you know, when you've got that that kind of closeness. Um, You know, obviously, yeah, I mean, you know, a man's got to know when to... You know, I mean, it's like if I have the casting vote. And, of course, remember, the truth of the matter is you can't have a working democracy on a committee with two people in it, can you? Because every time you take a vote, what happens when you get one vote for this and one vote for that? Someone's got to have the casting vote. That is given to the husband. But obviously, in any instance, he can use his casting vote by deferring to his wife. And this is one of the responsibilities of, of, of a husband to know when he's really got to put his foot down about something. And, of course, in that sense, unless his wife submits to him, that's just pie in the sky anyway. Can you see? And I've always been convinced each time when, when Paul addresses this, he always starts with the wives. Wives submit to husbands. That always comes first. And, and I mean, it, you know, because it does, it seems to me it's not arbitrary, it's not coincidence. And the only reason I can think of why is because, you know, and of course when you're a married man you understand this very, very vividly. At the end of the day, I may well be responsible to the Lord, I may well be in charge, I may well have the casting vote, but unless I have a wife who submits to me, it's all mere theory. It's all verses written in the Bible. Can <laughs> you see what I mean? So therefore, unless a wife is prepared to be submissive to her husband, the question is, what chance has he got? And the answer is, he's got no chance whatsoever, you see. And, and so that's why Paul, Paul says, because obviously this is a free will deal. You know, I mean, sort of like, you know, I mean, a, a man can't make his wife do something, or can he? I mean, of course he can't. So, so therefore, unless this voluntary submission, but the point is, even so, if you've got a husband who's putting it, always putting his foot down, there's gotta be something wrong there. Always putting his foot down. I mean, this is a marriage, not a war zone, isn't it? And, uh, you know, it, it's, but, but yes, a husband has got to be able to put his foot down when necessary, yes. Now, once he does, he can't do anything. He, can, he can't he can do diddly squat, as they say in the States, about whether his wife obeys him and submits to him. All he can do is to say, this is the way it's going to be, darling. And then if she... If, and that's all he can say and do. And if she disobeys him, he's got to love her anyway. But, um... Yeah, but, uh...
1: I've just seen where Derek gets his this. what You know, he talked about washing her in the word. Yeah, that's right. I, yeah. I asked him at that time when he was giving that where he got that from. What was the scriptural backing is there? Right. Yeah. That's right. The I yeah. It there
0: yeah. <coughs> yeah. But I mean, big decisions. You know, everything. I mean, all this rests on the husband. Not that I'm saying the husband. You know, obviously, there's you know there's input, but it's the husband's responsibility to make the big decisions. You see. And, uh, you know, but obviously he does that in partnership with his wife. But the responsibility is his. And, uh, and obviously he's free at any time to defer. I mean, if there's a decision, he thinks one thing and the wife thinks the other, he's free to defer to her. But he carries the can. If it all goes wrong, he can't say, well, it's your fault, you know, that was your suggestion. Because if he agreed to it, he's... You see, that, that's the point. The man's headship is it's a devastating thing. It's responsibility before the Lord. It's not, hey, I'm the king of the castle, you know, get my own way. Quite the opposite. Well, you look at the uh, Genesis and all the Judgment, fell on Adam, didn't they? So, yeah. Because your scene, yeah. you know, the world's in the game. Yes, yeah. It was all Yeah, that's right. But, of course, the, the thing with Adam is that when Eve handed him the fruit, now, arguably, there was nothing Adam could have done about what Eve did. I mean, you know, how can a man... How can a man have control over what his wife's doing when she's not with him? But he took the fruit and he ate it as well. That was the that's, problem. That's the question, for us. But if when offered him the fruit, he said, No, you've been very irresponsible. But have be yeah. But like, would the Lord not have been called to the fall? That's not the <laughs> Well, no, it wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't have happened because sin is passed on through the man. Right, so there wouldn't have be been a fall. There wouldn't have been a fall. No. So he could have done that. It was the fact yeah. that Adam sinned. And again, this actually. I mean, sort of like again. I mean, you know, we're back to something so fundamental that any idea of women in leadership is blown out of the water. Why did God hold Adam responsible for sin? Because he was the leader in his family. That's the point. Eve wasn't held responsible. Adam was. I mean, you know, sort of like why is it that you know, like you turn to Romans you know, sort of like the the, the most fundamental explanation of the Gospel and redemption that there is in Scripture. And the whole thing hinges around, in Adam we all died. Sorry, in Adam. Well, why not in Eve we all died? Because Adam was the judicial head of the human race. Headship is male. It's as fundamental as anything there is in Scripture. Headship is male. And it's for one reason. The Lord God of Israel is male. Come on. God became a man. Yeah, but it makes a quotation in, in this Timothy passage about women should be saved through childbirth. Yeah. And the reason they're saved from childbirth is a woman who gave birth to Jesus. Hmm.
1: It's saved it's the Lord. And so the balance there... You know, oh!
0: That's <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's right. It's worth salvation could not have happened without women. Because... Uh, Jesus didn't need a, my, a, a human father, but he needed a human mother. Yeah. Does God have any feminine traits to him? Oh, yeah, definitely. son Yeah, I mean... Where does the feminine part come in then? There's no more than a thing about men looking to their... Getting in touch with their feminine side. Yeah. The, the baggage that comes with that, yes, I mean, past the bath bag, indeed, yes. But there's a fundamental truth in it, in that sense. All we do know is that God created man in his own image, but he created woman in his own image as well. But he is male, because he became a man. So the point is, yeah, clearly God has feminine within him. That's where femininity comes from. But it doesn't change the fact that God is male, Jesus was male, ma- man is the head... Leadership is male. But yes, God definitely has feminine within him, but that doesn't mean he's androgynous. That would be heresy. Yes. And some people try and make out he's couldn't neither male nor female. female. Sorry? Woman couldn't ever be called as being made in the image
1: of God. You see what I mean? If, God, yeah. if woman was that's a totally right. different entity and yes. not in the image of God, that's right.
0: God Absolutely. Yeah. Had
1: nothing oh. of woman.
0: That's right. That's right. But
1: I don't mean anything physical. But mm-hmm. yeah, no, that's right. Yeah.
0: yeah, but of course, the picture is we're asking how can how can male and female come from that which is male? Mm-hmm. Eve was created out of Adam. That's Adam true, was male. That's true. So, so, so the point is that that femininity, as opposed to masculinity, God is masculine. Um, but nevertheless, there's feminine within him.
1: It um, by because just because he, he is referred to. It's always he. Yeah, of course that, it is. That, that's the only basis on yeah. which you say that, that, isn't it?
0: Yeah, that's right. And yet Jesus, I mean, the Bible certainly used feminine imagery for him. Yeah. <coughs> Jesus used feminine imagery of himself. The Apostle Paul used feminine imagery of himself. Um, so do men have a feminine side? Yes. Right. Yeah. We have a feminine my voice. Yeah, I was like because I'm <coughs> got a frog in my Chris, yes, that's what you do. Um, but the point primarily our feminine side is our wives. Is our wives. But I think sorry? No, but I mean it, it, it's I mean when we talk about our feminine side, what we're talking about are the attributes that are more true of women than men. Sensibility and stuff like that. Now, men can have that. Of course they do. I mean, you know, men, men are... It's not simply that men are blockheads 100%. I mean, that, that would be, you know, but... Well, but you <laughs> <think he does laughs> the, Sorry? Vincy does, does the, the ironing. Man, well, there's his feminine side. and, and, and yeah. cooking. Well, there you go. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, but no, I mean, the point is that, that, that clearly God had within him male and female, all right? because he created women as well as men in his own image. But the point is, a man is a man created in God's image. A woman is a woman. So to that extent, a man's feminine side, a woman's masculine side. It's just referring to the fact that women don't have a complete monopoly on that which is feminine, but they have more of it than men. Men don't have a complete monopoly on that which is masculine, but they have more of it than women. I think it's that. But the idea is complementariness coming together to... You know, it's a compliment. But no, it's important. Male, both male and female came from God. But he is male. And uh, you try sometimes, you know, you know some of the people say, well, these are just, it's almost symbolic language. God is neither male nor female. And it's just, you know, limitations of language. It's not. God is male. He is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is a man. There's nothing symbolic about that. His son, there's nothing symbolic about that. That is the literal truth. and Is he masculine? Although there are times when feminine is used of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but there's no, he is male. And um, you know I came across someone once who sent me a book they'd written based on a revelation they'd had that the Holy Spirit is female. And uh, quite a nice idea actually, but it's still heresy you know, but it's the sort of thing that would appeal to today's politically correct, you know, but no. Sorry, as?
1: As a breasted one. In, in, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. In, in terms of giving as a motherly.
0: Yeah, oh, that's right.
1: He refers to himself as breasted ones. Yeah. The one with breasts. So, I mean, in that sense, he's giving uh, a feminine, uh, maternal, mm, uh, right. you know, image to his children. So, yeah. He, <clears throat> so,
0: yeah, I
1: mean, God is more than what we can imagine, is he? Yeah.
0: That's, oh, yeah, that's, that's yeah. A... No, I mean, sort of, Jesus said to Jerusalem, I wanted to gather you under my wings. That's female, the hen with her chicks. But it doesn't make him female. But the point is that, 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 that for us, men without the balance of women are incomplete. Women without the balance of men are incomplete. God in himself is utterly balanced as a male. Wisdom is described as, as a woman, yeah, crying in the, yeah, in the same way that the prostitute cries out to young men to pervert them. Wisdom, mm-hmm. like a woman, cries out to struggle. Is it yeah, that's yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, in Proverbs, it's a literary device. It's a literary, you know, device. And although wisdom is personified, there it's a literary device because we know. We know
1: about females, is it? No,
0: that's right. Because we know we know from Corinthians that Jesus is our wisdom in chapter three. He is made unto us wisdom and sanctification. So Jesus is the wisdom of God, but he's male, you know, and. uh, Sorry? Satan is male. Satan is male, yes, so, absolutely.
1: So, um, we have the purest as male and the impurest as male.
0: Yes, well, that's right. I believe there's one reference in the Old Testament to an angel which vaguely could be a female reference. But but, but certainly it seems the angels are all male in that sense. And, um,
1: yeah.
0: But I think as long as we remember... That, I mean, obviously feminism is an enemy of the truth, but so is chauvinism. Chauvinism, the oppression of women, is equally an enemy of the truth. The problem is that what a lot of feminists do, because they are feminists, whether or not they like that phrase or not, I mean, I'm, and, and I'm not using the word feminist as a put-down, I'm just saying they, they are philosophical feminists, whether they want to call themselves or not, because what they're doing is they're saying the mere idea of women... A wife submitting to her husband, even functionally, equals that she's inferior. Now, that's that's a completely wrong, that's that's daft logic. As I say, you know, a wife submitting to her husband is no more his inferior than when Jesus submits to the Father. That's ridiculous. Yeah, that's very interesting
1: because nobody told me to compare those
0: two. Right. In India, you always have something, something, something,
1: something, and keep quiet. Um, yes, so I uh, yeah. Nobody, nobody gave me that one, but. Once, when I was, you know, sort of, uh, then for this, Philippians opened itself. And I read that, and for the first time, it hit me like a poll where it says, but he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Yeah, that's all. And I saw that verse ever emphasis, and I said, it's real, isn't it? And yeah. It, it's so, it became so real to me that Jesus was God, and yet he had to try on the cross, yeah. and there was no question he had to suffer it. And how does he handle that? It's exactly the same. It
0: is, yeah. I don't need to grasp the quality of man, yeah, yeah. When 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 husbands are told to love their wives as Christ loves the church, then Jesus is requiring of them to be like Him in His relationship to the church. When He tells wives to submit to their husbands, He's requiring them to be like Him in His relationship to His Father. It's
1: has
0: like got example perfect mm. then. Yeah, that's right. Of course, one other thing, just worth saying quickly, is when you get all this stuff about the fall and the redemption has undone it, it doesn't apply anymore. All right. So wives don't have to submit to their husbands. Why don't these people say children don't have to obey their parents? See, that's real, isn't it? I could Jesus going on what was worse, Jesus on the cross, the father sitting there,
1: most powerful man, of the world,
0: I'm not doing it. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. What? <laughs> Yeah. In fact, he was not watching. He, the, the worst punishment that Jesus received was from the Father, because mm. the Father crushed his own Son so. in the cross. Mm. Yeah. See, after that, Isaiah gives us an image of just a lump of flesh, because he was the Father crushed his Son so much that he was just a lump of flesh. You.